0: Morning everybody, we'll try that again, good morning everybody, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, if the rain stops, happy 4th of July, and uh, we will have a uh, cookout and pool party at my house after the service. As the video stated, what a year this has been. For some of us, it's been a great year, with many things to be thankful for. For some of us, it's been a year of challenge. And loss. At this time of the year, so, so close to the new year, we look back on everything that has happened and we look forward to the future in hope. We all yearn for a newness of some type, a fresh start to the year. We make goals, we change our habits, and we tell ourselves we want to be something different or we want to do something different. For some of us, we may say, I want to read a little bit more this year and watch a little less TV. We want to do something more and something less. One way that many of us do this in this post-Christmas, pre-New Year period is we address our health. It's the perfect time. You see, we just spent the last half of November eating a ton of food. We've spent almost all of December eating all these delicious goodies and Christmas cookies and really hearty, heavy meals. And now we sit in what I like to call the dead space of winter. There is no use in changing our eating habits now. I mean, we are so close to the end of the year. Why not just wait until January 1st and then we'll make all of our changes. We'll make all the changes to our health and our habits at that point. This is the time of the year when gym memberships start to increase and healthy how-to books start to fly off of the shelves and then die out by February. All the fad diets begin to become resurrected in our society again and continue to cycle and cycle and cycle through until they burn out and no one's doing them anymore people have tried the Atkins diet. And if any of you have done the Atkins diet or know what the Atkins diet is, you know you can't do that for very long. That is not a way your life can be sustained. I have a friend who did an all-juice diet. And I said, so what are you, what are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm drinking water. I'm, I, I add maple syrup to that. I add cayenne pepper and, and a little bit of lemon. And I, I drink that about 12 times a day. <laughs> How do you feel? I feel great. No, really, how do you feel? I feel fantastic. Seriously, how do you feel? I feel miserable. Well, no kidding. You're not putting anything into your system. That way, life is not sustainable. Juicing diets don't work. Or my favorite is the Whole30 plan, Whole30 diet. People have heard of this. It is an extremist view of the paleo diet. So let me tell you a little bit about the Whole30. This is the diet that says you can't have any type of pastas or breads. So you've excluded any type of Italian food, you can't have any kind of starch or carbs in your diet, you cannot have any form of dairy, so there goes milk and cheese out the window, you can't have any form of beans, you can't have most fruits, you cannot have vegetables, and let's forget sugar completely, because any type of refined sugar is completely thrown out the window. You're not allowed to laugh or have fun while you're on this diet, and most of the time, You sit in a room pretending to be enjoying your life. The Whole30 doesn't work. Atkins doesn't work. Juicing is not a healthy diet. None of these diets ever work on the long-term basis. They are always short-lived because they cannot be sustained. You can't live on those diets alone forever. Forever. Anyone who does any type of research, you are going to learn that the only effective way to live a healthy life is by exercising and eating right. This is called a lifestyle change. It's not a diet. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a 30-day thing. It is a lifelong change that you are committed to. You see, our health is completely dependent upon our habits, how active we are, how we eat. This is what is sustainable for us. This is what creates a healthy life. Healthy habits, a healthy diet, gives a healthy life. In the same way, so many churches are dying every year because they are trying to use the newest diets to produce the best results. Each year, thousands, hear me again, thousands of churches close because of their poor health. Many church plants close just as soon as they open their doors because they never see their poor and unsustainable diets as an issue to their overall health as a church. If we truly believe Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew, then nothing can stop or hinder the church. There has to be a solution to this problem. There has to be a remedy to the health issues of churches. There has to be a healthy diet for the church in order to sustain. There has to be a healthy diet for the church to consume. This morning we're going to take a look at what the Bible describes as a healthy diet for the healthy church. But before we do, let's pray together and let's ask for God's guidance as we study his word. So would you pray with me? Father, we come to you recognizing our need for you today. Father, you are so good and you are so gracious. I pray that as we open your word, as we study your word, we come to a better understanding of what you want us to know about not just our lives but the lives of the church. Father, I pray that as we study today, we begin to understand more and more what healthy doctrine and the healthy diet of the church is. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be reading from Titus chapter 2, verses 1-15. through 15. If you have a pew Bible, go ahead and grab that. That is on page 998. And I want to encourage you, grab a Bible, open it up. I want you to see the words that I'm speaking, the things that I am teaching are not my own ideas or my own opinions. These are from God's word. And if you do not have a Bible, if you've come today and you don't have your own Bible, that black Bible that's in the pew is yours. You can freely take it. There'll be another one in its place next week. So let's begin reading Titus 2, verses 1 through 15. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Verse 1 says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Right from the very beginning, Paul is making a case for his thesis and the solution to our problem. It's this. Healthy doctrine is the diet of the church. Healthy doctrine is the diet of the church. Chapter 2 begins with this phrase, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The ESV translation is one of the few Bible translations that translates the Greek into this phrase, but as for you. Paul draws the dividing line and is clear that there is to be a difference between unhealthy churches and healthy churches. At the time of Paul's writing, the, the Cretan church was in trouble. Chapter 1 gives us a detailed account of what was happening. You see, false teachers were influencing and leading people astray by by their teaching. They were insubordinate. They were deceivers and empty talkers. This is a fancy way to say they were liars, false promises, and evil motives. They taught for shameful gain and were upsetting entire families and disrupting the church. Even more so, Paul says that they professed to know God but deny him by their works. They were detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. These people tried to talk the talk but also refused to walk the walk. They didn't do what they said and taught and nothing healthy came out of their lives in the church. According to Paul, these teachers were diseased and infecting others. The health of the church was in trouble. But not only did the Apostle Paul make clear in his statement that there was to be a difference between unhealthy and healthy churches, but he also told Titus how we are to be different. By teaching what accords with sound doctrine. So in the teaching of the church, all things are to align and fall into what is considered sound doctrine. This is a really interesting phrase, sound doctrine. Many of us hear this phrase and tend to shut off. We hear doctrine, we think stuffy, we think over our heads, and this is only useful for theologians and pastors to debate, but it doesn't affect my personal walk as a Christian, my personal life as a Christian. Let me tell you this, you're wrong. It does impact your life. Let me tell you why. Because Paul says if you are to be different, your life and the church is to be aligned with sound doctrine. The word we find for sound is actually where we derive the word hygiene from, it means to be completely healthy and fit it should depict an idea of wholeness or that something is working in proper condition and intended purpose. This word is actually used in the the Gospels when Jesus heals somebody of a physical ailment. That when their body is completely working again, it is said they are sound. So we see sound as whole, fit, and working. This is where we get the idea of healthy doctrine. Healthy doctrine is our diet the doctrine that is being spoken of isn't just any doctrine. It's not just any form of teaching. As, as I studied this week, I, I found something really interesting that the Greek word for doctrine is not alone. It's actually accompanied by a definite article. I'm going to take it. Hear me out before you shut me off because I know I'm kind of using language like this. This is really important to understand as we continue on through the passage. So hear me out. Don't shut me off. There's a definite article that's used next to the word doctrine. So if we were to translate this properly, it wouldn't make sense in English, but what Paul is saying is, but as for you, teach what accords with the sound doctrine. It's like saying Ohio State. We never say Ohio State University. What do we say? The Ohio, it's not even the Ohio State University, it's the Ohio State University. When we say the Ohio State University, it is clear people know what we are talking about. We are pinpointing a college, a location, a pedigree, and tradition, and honor is all wrapped up in that idea. With sound doctrine, we are to teach a specific set of instruction. We are to align what we think and what we say and what we do according to this. Our lives should be aligned to the very word of God and what it teaches. This is what the health of the church rests upon. So scripture teaches us that if if we want to be healthy, unlike the false teachers who were sick and deceiving, we need to align with sound doctrine. Healthy doctrine is like what we put into us. It's like eating well and exercising. It's what goes in. But there is something that is produced. There is results to this. False teachers didn't have results. False teachers still don't have results because their doctrine is sick and weak. But Paul tells us there are results to healthy doctrine. We see that healthy doctrine produces disciples. Healthy doctrine produces disciples. Let's continue on in the next couple of verses. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Old women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. When the church is marked by healthy doctrine, one of our greatest results that happens is healthy disciples. This passage is being directed to many different categories of people. We see older men, older women, younger women, younger men. This parallels the household code of that time, but is also applicable to us today. First, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith in love and in steadfastness. Older men would have been somewhere in mid-40s, early 60s, They didn't just have families. Their families were grown. They they had been guys that had been through it. If if you're wondering today, would you qualify to be an older man, stand up, drop your sermon notes to the floor, and if you have to think twice about picking it up because you're not sure how standing up is going to be, you probably do qualify to be an older man. But this isn't the only quality that we're talking about here. Paul describes... The older man of the church as sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. The older man that healthy doctrine has taken root in has been given three marks of maturity as well as three marks of godliness. The character of these men give them a certain sense of gravitas, a certain air about them. They walk in the room, you recognize this. But they also are accompanied by an incredible amount of trust in the Lord, love and service to others, as well as an unwavering hope, perseverance in the fulfillment of their faith. These older men are the the type of men that their lives are so anchored down that nothing will move them. Their conduct and character in the Lord prevails all. If we want to be a healthy church, we need healthy, older men. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. Not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. Let's stop there for a moment and let's see what's being spoken about, about the older women. The word says, likewise, in reverent and in behavior. This is referencing what we had just talked about the older men that the character and the conduct of older women is to be rooted in and aligned with sound doctrine. They are to be so stable in their ways, they are to be looked upon as sources of knowledge. They have lived life, and there's something that we can glean from their lives. They have depth to their lives. Their character and conduct are respected and their lives are marked with godliness. Paul compares what is unhealthy with what is healthy for older women. He says, they are not to be slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women. Not to be slanderers or slaves to much wine. Older women of the church... Your life should not be marked by the words that flow from your mouth or the drink that pours from your cup. Your life is not marked by the words that flow from your mouth or the drink that pours from your cup. Do you hear me? You're not to be slanderers or slaves to much wine. Now, we don't have to spend much time going into defining what slander is slander is an act of making a false statement against somebody. It's in an attacking, it's in accusing, and it's in a cutting down sense. But let's look at that second half. Slave to much wine. While scripture isn't condemning the drinking of wine, Paul is making the connection that slanderous talk and drinking go hand in hand. The culture and society of this time, drinking and talking were together. It was girls' night out in the first century. This has been a long week. I need this. I, I gotta have this. I gotta get away from my family. I need time on my own with my girls, and we're just gonna go out. And you know what happens? They begin to talk, they begin to drink, they begin to talk more, they begin to drink more, they begin to talk. And this leads to a cycle, and still leads to a cycle of slander and growing gossip in the church. This isn't a mark of godly character. Conduct, It isn't reverent or respectable in behavior and is totally out of line with sound, healthy doctrine. But Paul says, instead of using your tongue for slander older women, teach and train the younger women. Let's continue on. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. The responsibility of teaching and training in godly character and conduct, the responsibility to disciple younger women is a charge to the older women of the church. Younger women need to be taught how to love their husbands and children. They need to be taught self-control, purity, priorities in life, kindness and hospitality, how a biblical marriage is lived out. All of this with the reason that God's word is upheld. Who better to teach the younger women how to live their life than the older women of the church who have grown in these areas, who have experienced life, and live their lives in light? of sound, healthy doctrine. I know what a lot of you are thinking as we glaze over this young women passage. That sounds great. None of those things really sound too difficult to do or, or to, to learn and grow in, but I'm really struggling with this idea where the Bible says working at home. It, if I'm a mom and I have a full-time or part-time job, am I sinning? No. If you are a stay-at-home mom, should you get a job to provide? Am I sinning if I do or don't? No. You see, Paul isn't communicating that in order to be a godly woman shaped by healthy doctrine, you need to stay home. But he is saying that your home life isn't neglected. That your love for your husband, your love for your children does not fall second seat. The idea is that older women teach the younger women to order their hearts and order their homes. If you don't believe it and you want a little bit more reading on that, check out Proverbs 31 and see the marks of a godly woman and see how a godly woman loves her husband, loves her children, but also loves her home by giving provision. Healthy doctrine producing disciples isn't just true for older men. It's not just true for older women. It's not just true for younger women, but younger men are addressed in this passage too. He says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. At first glance, it seems like the younger guys kind of got off the hook, doesn't it? Like, long list for the older guy, long list for the older lady, long list for the younger lady, and it's like, hey, young guys, just you're so messed up, just be, be self-controlled. That's the only thing you have to do is just be self-controlled. There's a quick comment about being self-controlled. No. I like to call this verse a pregnant verse. We look at it and we know there is much more depth to it than there is from just staring. So let's unpack this a little bit. We find the word likewise leads off this verse. Likewise urge the younger men. The idea of self-control has spanned each age group so far and continues with the younger guys. It just isn't one task to accomplish for the younger men, but is involved in all areas of their life. Often I think self-control is probably one of the hardest things to do. Am I right? We all just celebrated Christmas. How many of you walk past your, your tables and you're like, one more cookie and I'm done. I'll take two. I need some more water. Oh, those macaroons are still here. Okay, I'm going to take that. And before you know it, how many cookies have you had? I cannot buy a pack of bubble gum without chewing every single piece in that pack within a short couple hours. I struggle with self-control. Self-control is hard and is all-encompassing into every area of your life. But let me tell you a secret. If God didn't make it possible to accomplish he would have never commanded it in this way the teaching and training that comes from older men and older women is invaluable to younger generations and I'll be honest this isn't an option it is a command teaching and training should be happening because we see it as a result of healthy doctrine older men training younger men, older women, training younger women. I read this passage, and I I can't help but think of my dad. My dad and I are incredibly close. We have an incredible relationship. And now that I'm married and have my own home, uh, I call my dad frequently. And I know that whenever anything needs done around the house, the, the first thought that pops into my mind is, better go call my father. Anytime I call, whether it's a plumbing issue, electrical, drywall, my dad's there. And it's not just the fact that my dad could do everything I ask him to do in the house. But it's the fact that he teaches and he trains. A couple months back, uh, we were rewiring an outdoor light. And there was some indoor wiring that needed replaced. and, And we're going through it and my dad goes here you go, here you go, hands me the tools and he goes, I want you to do it. I'm going to show you how to do it because this is important and the next time it needs done, you're not calling me to come over. (laughs) My dad's life lessons have spanned from home projects to cooking to yard work to life lessons in general and I can't tell you how many times something has happened and I can sit back and go, I know my dad told me how to do this, I remember in this situation, my dad said, do this. I have been taught and I have been trained, but this practical illustration needs to become a spiritual reality within our churches. Healthy doctrine produces disciples in the same way. Older men and are teaching younger men and older women are teaching younger women. As a young man is struggling with self-control, an older man that has respect to aid comes alongside and helps him. As a younger woman is struggling with how to love her husband and her children properly, an older woman comes beside her and teaches her and trains her how to love appropriately. As a young man who's at wit's end with long-suffering, and doesn't know how to suffer in perseverance, an older man in the church can come alongside and walk and teach and train. Healthy doctrine leads to healthy disciples within this church. If our church's diet is is healthy doctrine, and producing healthy disciples is the next natural step then being a faithful witness is an overflow of that. Let's continue reading on. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing not argumentative, not pilfering, by showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Healthy doctrine produces a faithful witness. Healthy doctrine produces a faithful witness. Verse 7 is kind of that odd line in the section that he's speaking to a church, show yourself in all respects, Titus, to be a model of good works healthy doctrine, there's healthy disciples, there's older men, there's older women, there's younger women, younger men, and then Paul even addresses Titus. What Paul is communicating, not only is Titus an example for younger men, but also a life that is accord with healthy doctrine is a life that is a faithful witness. That your life is on display and your teaching impacts those around you. Paul encourages Titus to be a model of good works, and consistent in his teaching. This phrase isn't saying that just be something that looks good, but literally through your good works and your teaching, be an example to others to imitate and mold into. We can look back at chapter 1 again and see how the false teachers and the unhealthy doctrine were not consistent. Their model did not match their teaching. Remember, they didn't walk the talk. This gave society an opportunity to observe their inconsistency and speak poorly about their character and their conduct and their doctrine. The example Titus was to give would leave naysayers speechless about the entire church. The impact of one person can be a reflection of the rest. A healthy witness is consistent to healthy doctrine. see, about six months ago, uh, Kelsey and I got married it's been a little over six months now, and what an awesome day it was! It couldn't have had a better ceremony, couldn't have a a better reception. We were surrounded by such great family and friends the entire night, and our marriage could not have started off on a better foot. Until the next night at about 2:15 in the morning, when our alarm went off to head to the airport. And I know I've stated before, I'm not a morning person, and I married someone who is not a morning person, so 2.15 went and it was like Ugh. No one, neither one of us talked. We got ready, we did what we needed to do. We got in the car, we left the house a little after three, got to the airport about four fifteen in the morning. We're like, we have plenty of time. So we got our luggage, we we went to the line to check our luggage so we could get on the plane and head off to our honeymoon. And that line never moved. We sat. And sat and sat and anxiety and stress began to rise. And I kept telling myself and my bride, everything's okay, (laughs) everything's fine. It'll it'll be completely fine. Don't worry about it, honey. Ten minutes passed, fifteen minutes passed, thirty minutes passed, forty-five minutes passed, hour passed, and we had still not checked our luggage. And I began to just go frantic. We finally get up to the line to check. At 5.30, when our flight was leaving at 6, we checked our bags, and we sprinted. I, we looked like fools running through the airport, just sprinting to the security. We get to security. We're, you know, taking the belt off, taking our shoes off, getting get through, get all our belongings. I didn't even put my belt or shoes back on. We just start running to the gate, and we're sprinting through the Pittsburgh airport, and we finally get to the gate right as the lady shut the door and locked it. I began to plead, please, this is our honeymoon, let us get on the plane, please, 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 and this lady would not budge. So, frustration on the morning had already been there. Anxiety was already in my system, and I said to the lady, well, what can we do about this? She gets behind her computer. Well, the next flight leaves in 12 hours. You You can get tickets for that. I'm thinking, no, but... How much are they? She said, well, they're $1,500 total. I began to plead more with her, please, there's got to be something you can do. She said, that's it. I said, is that the best you can do? And my tone of voice must have changed to not very nice because she looked at me. She said, sir, I can give you a food voucher while you wait. <laughs> a food voucher? That's the best you can do, Lady? So for about 15 minutes, I presided to uh, read her the riot act on why I was so angry and why this was not my fault and why this was everybody else's fault. And as I'm sitting there just losing my mind about how stressed out and anxious I am, I begin to think, I really hope she doesn't ask what I do for a living. <laughs> Does my checkbook say reverend? Did I say anything? Did I, did I, I finish, the lady walks away from me. And I turned to find my bride of less than 48 hours, and she's nowhere to be found. She's down the hall, stressed out and embarrassed. And all I could sit and think of was my conduct and my character did not match what I say. My conduct and my character did not match healthy doctrine. It was not a model of good works that teaching of integrity, dignity, and sound speech claim. The way I acted would give anyone an opportunity to not just call me a hypocrite, but call other pastors and other Christians hypocrites. Not only does our model of good works and teaching reflect the health of the church by the way we speak and act, but it also gives us opportunity to show the beauty and health of our doctrine Continue reading here. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, by showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Bond servants were a group that were included in the household code of that time. They were slaves owned by other people. All of their possessions, all of their livelihood were dictated by somebody else. Bondservants in the New Testament were debt-induced slaves, but no matter how you put it, this was not a joyous thing to be a part of. But even in the hardest circumstances of slavery, Paul says that one is to be submissive, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, and showing all good faith if we were to sit down after church and make a list of things that we would be if we became slaves or bondservants, none of those things would make our list. I can't sit there and think, you know, if I became a slave today, what would be the number one quality I would want? You know, I would be completely submissive. You're right. I would not be argumentative. I would not be pilfering. And I would do all things well. No, I'd be scared out of my mind. The end of this verse shows the motivation behind the character, even in slavery. They are to be this way. Scripture says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The motivation for good character in slavery is so that you adorn the doctrine of God. The root of adorning something was be used to describe of lining up your jewels so that everybody could see the beauty of it. It was presenting all of your possessions, your diamonds, everything so people could see it. It's, it's like my good friends Chris and Sarah Drombetta. Their two children are two of my favorite kids. Kelsey and I are incredibly close to the Drombetta family. And the first time we went over to their house, we we're walking around, we see the tour, and cute little Topher and Emma come up and go, do you want to see our bedrooms? Like, sure, and we walk in, and Topher is just thrilled. And Emma's this is where I put my toys. This is where my bed is. This is where I do this. They were so proud of their room. They had their room lined up so they could show off the beauty and the treasure that they perceive in their bedrooms. Through your character, even in slavery, can present and show the beauty of the doctrine of God. You want to do this because you yourself recognize the beauty and treasure and majesty that it holds. Healthy doctrine produces a faithful witness in all circumstances. So, we, we've spent so much time today studying healthy doctrine. We have seen how sick doctrine and false teachers disrupted the church, therefore, making sense to us why healthy doctrine is so important and why it is the diet of the church. We see that just like eating good food and exercising, healthy doctrine yields results. We see that those results are disciples making disciples and faithful witnessing. But there's one thing we really haven't addressed, and I know many of you are probably wondering, what is healthy doctrine? We know we need healthy doctrine. We know what it produces, But what is it? Let's read on verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Healthy doctrine is the declaration of God's grace. For the grace of God has appeared, because Jesus Christ has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is the foundation of what healthy doctrine is. This is the very reason we are spurred on to teach and to train and make disciples. This is the very reason we are to live our lives in accordance with God's word. This is the motivation for our character and conduct that Jesus Christ has come and he will come again. Verses 11 through 14 not only see the definition of what healthy doctrine is for the church, but the outworking of God's grace. We just celebrated the birth of Jesus on Christmas. We're going to celebrate his work on the cross in just a couple of months, believe it or not, at Easter. And theologian John Stott says this specifically about God's grace in Jesus, that it was brightly displayed in his lowly birth, in his gracious words and compassionate deeds, and above all in his atoning death, he himself was full of grace. But the definition of doctrine that that Paul gives just doesn't end with God's saving grace. It also trains us. It doesn't save us and leave us where we are, but God's grace sanctifies us, gives us new life by training us to renounce the world, to live lives according to his word, as upright and self-controlled, and we wait in eager expectation for the return of Jesus. Remember how I defined the word sound, at the beginning of my sermon, it was hygiene, fit, healthy, and whole. Healthy doctrine declares God's grace saves and teaches. We can't just have one without the other, it has to be wholly taught to be complete. To speak of God's saving grace without including the process of a changed life or sanctification would be denied the need for God to save us in the first place. If we didn't need our lives changed, he wouldn't need to save us. But if we flip it around the other way and we teach all about the need for a changed life without saying that God saves you first in his free gift of grace, we would be equating salvation as something that we can do and we can work for and we can achieve. But let me tell you, here's the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of healthy doctrine. You aren't good enough. And there is nothing you can do to redeem yourself. But God... In his great mercy and grace before the foundation of the world began to weave his story of redemption. That in mankind's sinfulness and rebellion, God sent his son to die on the cross to defeat sin, to conquer death. And through Jesus' death, his resurrection, and our call to salvation, we receive new lives that are empowered by the Holy Spirit that is working within us to shape us, to mold us, to sanctify us, and to purify us for his return. The scope of God's grace saves and trains in healthy, whole, sound doctrine. This is the sound. This is the whole doctrine, the healthy doctrine that Paul speaks of in verse one. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That specific instruction, that specific teaching revolves around this, declaring God's grace and declaring that Jesus has come And Jesus will come again. Paul ends this passage with a short phrase. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. As a church body, let's strive to make healthy doctrine the diet of Old North Church together. Let's declare the truths that we know and understand. Let's declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's see healthy doctrine yield disciples and faithful witnesses. Let's encourage one another. Let's teach one another, knowing that the authority is not our own, but we grow together in the hope of the one who will come again. If you're here today and you're thinking, this, this makes sense, I, I see how healthy doctrine impacts the life of the church, but also the life of an individual. But I've never fully understood the gospel. And I want this as a pattern in my life. Come down and pray with us. Pray with any of our elders as we close in song. But if you're sitting here and you're thinking, Nathan, I have understood the gospel for a long time. But what you're teaching today about healthy doctrine is the diet of the church. My life's just not lining up to that. And I want God's word to be revolved around my life. Come down and pray with us too. So as Chris comes up and we we prepare to close, let's pray and ask for God's blessing. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the ability to uh, come in despite the weather, despite the rain, to study your word, and I thank you for the faithfulness of all those that are here today and they and 're yearning to know more about who you are and who you represent yourself to be in your word. But Father, I pray that as we look at a new year and as we consider the things in our lives that we want to change, we still understand and root ourselves in the fact that healthy doctrine, that understanding the gospel of Jesus is what makes the church healthy. Father, I pray that we proclaim these things and declare these things without fear, without worry, but knowing that your power is the power for salvation, not anything that we can accomplish on our own, but it's work that you have done. So, Father, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.